welcome to the A-Level RE podcast. This week we're looking at omniscience as one of the attributes of God. There is a PowerPoint and some resources to accompany this talk on the blog, which you might find useful as we wade through some fairly mind-bendy philosophy. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy! When we talk about God, especially if we're going to make claims about God like He exists, then we need to know what it is we're talking about. In other words, we need to be able to identify the qualities or necessary attributes that God must possess in order to be God and not some lesser being. In the 11th century, Saint Anselm described God as a being than which no greater can be conceived. That is, a perfect being, in possession of all the qualities which make God perfect. Perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly merciful, etc. Uh, among those perfections or attributes of God is omniscience. God is perfectly knowing. Philosophers have wrestled with the idea of God's omniscience because it raises a number of problems and some of those we're going to explore here. So if God is omniscient, does he know the future? Does God know my future actions or choices? Does God know what I will have for breakfast tomorrow morning? And if he does, can that still be considered to be a free action? To start with, we need to establish exactly what we mean when we talk about God having perfect knowledge. A solid definition is always important because it'll help us to analyse the various philosophical arguments later on. Now, when we talk about God's omniscience, we mean that God knows everything that is true to be true and everything that is false to be false. That means his knowledge is complete and entirely accurate. In other words, God can't be wrong because he's infallible. That is another perfection. The problem is, if God's knowledge is perfect and complete and he can't be wrong and he can't change his mind, then that implies that God knows what I'm going to do in the future. This is called the problem of accidental necessity. And it was put forward by William of Ockham in which he relies on the idea that events in the past cannot be changed. So something that has happened has happened and that's necessary, necessary in the philosophical sense of it must or it can't be otherwise. So let's have a look at the argument. Premise one, God infallibly believes on Monday that I will rob a bank on Wednesday. Now he can't be mistaken about this because God can't be wrong. Premise two, this belief is accidentally necessary on Tuesday. So that means by the time we get to Tuesday, God's belief is now an event in the past and that means it can't be changed. Premise three, if it's accidentally necessary on Tuesday, it's true on Tuesday that I will rob a bank on Wednesday. Now, I can't not do it because that would make God wrong. Premise four, if when I act, I cannot do otherwise, I do not do it freely. So accidental necessity poses a serious problem to the concept of human freedom because according to this, I can't be blamed for robbing the bank because I had no choice over the decisions that I make or the actions that I carry out. So 
it appears that either I'm free or God is omniscient. They're incompatible. We can't have it both ways. This view of omniscience is often called divine foreknowledge. God knows before things happen. And it seems that God's foreknowledge means things have to happen as they do because God can't be wrong. So the fact that he knows what the future will be means it will be. Now, this clearly has really significant problems when it comes to moral responsibility. And it also links directly to the problem of evil. Occam's principle of accidental necessity shows that God knows about all the evil actions that people will do. And his knowledge of them means they can't act differently. So when Hitler picked up his pen to sign off on the final solution to the Jewish problem, that was the policy behind the systematic genocide known as the Holocaust, God already knew it would happen. And so Hitler wasn't free to do otherwise. Occam's principle rests on the idea that God is everlasting, that is, within time. God recognises the chronology of past, present and future. That is, if it's Monday for me, it's also Monday for God. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow is yet to happen. But this is a rather restrictive view of God and it raises questions when we think about God as the creator of the universe because how could a temporal God, that is a God in space and time, also have been the first cause and the unmoved mover? Brian Davis picks up on this and he calls it the argument for simplicity. He says, and I quote, if something changeable accounted for there being a world in which change occurs, it would be part of such a world and could not therefore account for it. There are other problems associated with an everlasting view of God. It also suggests that God changes, that his knowledge changes because his knowledge of an event prior to it happening is different to his knowledge of the event after it happened. So if we say today God knows it's Monday and tomorrow we say today God knows it's Tuesday, the nature of God's knowledge has changed. And this is in direct contrast to another of God's perfections or attributes, that of immutability. An immutable God can't change. So if we view God as being within time and space, then we've got the problem of divine foreknowledge, we've got issues with God as the creator of the universe, and it contradicts his immutable nature. Uh, it certainly wasn't the way in which Boethius or Aquinas viewed God. For these, and many philosophers who came after them, God is eternal, that is transcendent and outside of space and time. So everlasting means within space and time, but eternal means outside of space and time. Boethius was a Roman senator and philosopher in the early 6th century. He was sentenced to death for treason and while he was imprisoned he spent quite a lot of his time thinking and writing. His book, which he wrote at the time, is called The Consolation of Philosophy and it takes form of a conversation between him and uh, an imaginary figure called the Lady Philosophy who represents Athena, the Greek goddess of wisdom. 
Boethius rejects the idea that God's foreknowledge determines future actions of humans. This is because for Boethius, God is eternal. So instead of having divine foreknowledge of the future, for Boethius, God sees all events, both past, present and future, sub specie eternitatis. That means from the viewpoint of eternity. He sees them all happening at the same time, simultaneously. So this means, according to Boethius, that God simply sees the future as the present, as if it's currently happening. So thereby, for Boethius at least, he sidesteps the problem posed to human freedom by God's foreknowledge. But God is still truly omniscient. He knows everything and he's outside of space and time and so he can't intervene, which means that humans can still have absolute free will. A few centuries later, Aquinas picked up on Boethius's idea and to illustrate his point, Aquinas uses the example of a man standing on a mountain looking down at the road below. Aquinas says, and I'm going to quote here, a man going along a road does not see those who come behind him, but a man who sees the whole road from a height sees altogether those passing along the road. So in the same way then, God from his vantage point of eternity is able to view past, present and future all at once as one eternal now. The principle of accidental necessity doesn't apply because as far as God is concerned, there's no past, present or future. It's just all eternal nowness. So Boethius and Aquinas are arguing that although God's knowledge is absolute, it's not causal. God's knowledge does not control my actions and I'm still free to do as I choose. Just because he's watching, it doesn't mean he's determined that it will happen. So let's just take a minute to think about this. Does God know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow? Yes, because he's watching me as I do it right now. But it's still my decision, whatever I decide to have for my breakfast, toast, cocoa pops, whatever, my choice, God will be watching from eternity. And this is quite different from Ockham's accidental necessity because God's just watching it happen. He's not causing it to happen. My actions are still freely undertaken. This is what Boethius called the liberty of indifference. Just because I see a man walking along the road, it doesn't mean I'm causing him to do so. Anthony Kenny, writing in 1969, was not convinced that Boethius and Aquinas had succeeded in defending God's omniscience and human freedom. As far as he was concerned, the whole idea that there is no past, present or future is incoherent. It just makes no sense. And he says, he's squaring his criticism directly at Aquinas here, on St. Thomas's view, my typing of this paper is simultaneous with the whole of eternity. Again, on this view, the great fire of Rome is simultaneous with the whole of eternity. Therefore, while I type these very words, Nero fiddles heartlessly on. Indeed, if all events are simultaneous to God, then 
God can't know what's past or what's future. And God can't know that today is Monday. There are added problems with the idea that God is eternal. Because if God is outside of space and time, then how is it possible for God to interact with his people? Soren Kierkegaard called this the absolute paradox. It's equally impossible for an eternal God to enter into space and time, and if he were to do so, remain eternal. And in addition, it's promoting a very remote picture of God removed from creation. So there's a danger that if we remove God from the temporal world and emphasise his eternity, we're going to cast doubts on other aspects of God's nature which are essential for believers. For Christians especially, the personal nature of God is central. God is not some remote or impersonal force. God is interactive with his creation and able to form relationships with his people. He can be experienced, perform miracles and be with you wherever you go, according to Joshua. Here, so it's worth remembering that the God of the philosophers is often quite different to the God of believers. For the theist, then, the loving, personal nature of God, along with human free will, are essential, much more so than the ideas of omniscience or omnipotence. However, there are a few resolutions to the problem posed by God's omniscience, so we'll have a look at them. Firstly, Swinburne. Swinburne rejects the idea that God is eternal and therefore immutable because he says it's much more important for God to love. And a loving God must be a changeable God, one who forgives and who intervenes. Swinburne says, if God had fixed his intentions from all eternity, he would be a very lifeless thing. So instead, Swinburne suggests that God's omniscience doesn't extend to having future knowledge. If we go back to our definition of omniscience, that is God knows everything that is true to be true and everything that is false to be false. This is because as the future hasn't yet happened, there's no truth to be known. Therefore, God can't know the future and there's no problem when it comes to preserving human freedom. He might be able to predict with total accuracy my future free actions and accurately predict that I'll choose Coca Pops over toast, but this isn't equal to knowing them. And this is an idea called the liberty of spontaneity, and I'm going to come back to that in my next podcast. But it's crucial to recognise that there is a difference between accurately predicting something and knowing it. Prediction is not the same as knowledge. The second possible resolution comes in the form of process or open theology. We often look at process thought when we consider the problem of evil or another of God's attributes, omnipotence, but it can be used as well when we talk about omniscience. We just have to be quite careful that we're using it to make the point that we want it to make. So process is the idea that God works with humans towards the end he's desired for, it, for humanity. So God is present within the world rather than beyond time and space. God can't know the future because the future hasn't yet happened and he doesn't control what's happening in the universe. Now this is 
rather a limiting view of God because it restricts both his omnipotence and his omniscience. But it does preserve human freedom and it's emphasising the personal nature of God, which is so central for the theist. So Griffin starts from a translation of Genesis 1 from the original Hebrew, which says, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without form and void. That's quite different from the usual translation, which starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Griffin says that this Hebrew translation suggests that the universe is itself eternal and it contains God within it. So God isn't seeing it being seen here as transcendent, he's temporal, he's part of the universe. So if this is the case, then it's God's role is not to have created the universe, but to develop what was already there. And he's seen as kind of trying to persuade creation towards greater order and complexity, a little bit like a conductor of an orchestra, trying to get every person to play in harmony rather than a kind of cacophony, chaotic. So for Whitehead and Griffin, God is very much involved with the world and its struggles. He's not separate from it. God is, as Whitehead says in his 1929 book, Process and Reality, the fellow sufferer who understands. So God's omniscience is restricted to the past and the present. He restricts his own omnipotence to allow humans to either act in accordance with his wishes for humanity or against them and so to to carry out evil. But unfortunately, if we're going to restrict God's perfections in this way, can we be sure that we're really talking about Anselm's that than which no greater can be conceived? Do we have the greatest possible being or do we have a lesser being and it's possible to think about God that is really omniscient and is really omnipotent? So let's just take stock of where we've got to today. Does God know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow? So William of Ockham would say yes. God knows and his foreknowledge means I must have what he knows I will have. I can't choose for myself and God's foreknowledge has determined my breakfast. Boethius and Aquinas would both say yes. God knows because he's watching me eat my breakfast from eternity. But this doesn't mean to say his knowledge is causal. He's just watching it happen simultaneously with all of time. Swinburne would say, no, God can't know because tomorrow is in the future and the future hasn't yet happened. It's illogical to suppose that God knows something where there is no truth to be known. And process theology would also say no. The future hasn't yet happened and God will be agonising with me over what I choose to have. So it does appear to be impossible to hold all of God's attributes as equally important and still maintain that humans have free will. However, the debate over God's omniscience has lots of links to other areas of philosophy of religion. I mentioned the problem of evil. I also mentioned in passing experience, religious experiences, miracles, prayer, forgiveness, judgment, 
uh, the cosmological arguments and of course religious language. So if you've been listening to my podcasts on language, you'll know I promise that it can be used to critique just about anything to do with the philosophy of religion and the omniscience of God is no exception. Is it misleading to speak of God as having knowledge in the same way that humans do? Can God think? Can God know? Are we anthropomorphizing God? All of those questions can be addressed when we're thinking about God's omniscience. In my next episode, I'm going to carry on with the question of human free will and moral responsibility. So some of the ideas touched upon here will be discussed in a bit more detail then. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to look on the blog for accompanying resources and questions to answer. And you can always follow A-Level RE on Facebook and Twitter too. See you next time.